You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. I'm Dr. Miriam Brand, and here again with me is Melissa Cantor. Hello, everyone. And Melissa, this is going to be a a fun episode for you, I hope, because I know that in previous episodes, it's really bothered you, the idea that people are kind of calling to God for help and not taking enough responsibility. So in this episode, we're actually talking about texts that belong to the Dead Sea community in which they emphasize responsibility despite their belief, right, that they've been chosen by God from the beginning of time and despite the belief that God determines all action, despite that, when they actually have an introduction to their rule texts, and the rule texts I'm speaking about here are the Damascus document and the community rule, when they have those, they actually emphasize choice And to a certain extent, free will, even though they assume that people on their own will tend to do bad, right? In other words, they have a pessimistic view. And that pessimistic view is something that we saw a little bit in the last episode when we looked at a sectarian prayer, like the Hodayot. There we saw it kind of linked to human physicality. And here it's more just kind of like the human will might tend to bad, but that does not remove responsibility, You're looking forward to it then. (laughs) (laughs) Good. So I'm going to start with the Damascus document. And it actually really is striking because when we think about the Dead Sea community, we really do think about a community that at least in theory should not, like they believe to such a degree in predestination, which would be like their own chosenness. Predestination would be the idea that people are put in categories, right, from the beginning of time. And determinism, which is regarding people's actions, that people's actions are determined from the beginning of time. They seem to believe so strongly in that, in their different texts, in their different central texts, that it's hard to understand how they also expect people to take full responsibility for their actions. And yet they do. And we really see that in specifically introductions to rule texts. So I'm going to start with the Damascus document. And the Damascus document in its most complete version has a very strange history because the truth is we knew about it first from the Cairo Gniza. We have two medieval copies of the Damascus document in the Cairo Gniza. So these copies were published in 1910 by Solomon Schechter. And then very small fragments of the Damascus document were found in caves five and six and more complete fragments in cave four. So in cave four, we had a total of eight manuscripts, the Damascus document. But we're talking about fragments, and the most complete version we have is actually medieval. But it's considered to be a full copy of the Damascus document. There's, of course, a question of how do we have a medieval copy of the Damascus document? If the sect kind of either died out or disbanded maybe with the destruction, how in the world was the Damascus document passed down? There is a story that's told about some medieval Jews who were kind of going around Israel and they found scrolls in the desert. And it makes sense, actually, that perhaps the Damascus document, the medieval copies, were from that. In other words, Jews went and they actually found some Dead Sea Scrolls. And because they're ancient, they're in scrolls, they're written in Hebrew, they said these are clearly holy, and they copied them over. 
right? Mm-hmm. Or another possibility is that it went underground. Another possibility is that there were people who kept these beliefs and it kind of went underground. We know that is what, in fact, happens to kind of uh, the non-Orthodox beliefs, if we can say, like non-Orthodox with a small o. When there's one mainstream of thought that kind of takes over, there are frequently the more what you could call fringe beliefs continue but underground. They're passed down in families and things like that. So that's another possibility. What makes it a less likely possibility is that we don't have anything else. In other words, if we had copies of the community rule and the Damascus document, or if we had the Damascus document and other Dead Sea sectarian things that had somehow leaked down, but to just have the Damascus document, it's a little strange that only that would survive if these beliefs were going underground in some kind of more comprehensive way. But who knows, I have not done research on how these beliefs go underground, but it seems more likely that it was actually, that these scrolls were actually found in the Middle Ages, considered holy and therefore copied. And therefore we have two medieval copies in the Karaknesa. So if we want to say, when is the earliest? When could this have been composed? Because we have the medieval copies and then we have several copies. Our, our most complete Dead Sea copies, you could say, are from K4. The earliest of these manuscripts, which is 4Q266, is from the first half or the middle of the first century BCE. It must be earlier than the middle of the first century BCE, which would be 50 BCE. So it must be earlier than 50 BCE. Now, the first section of the complete Damascus document is a kind of a review of Israelite history, and it's a promise of future salvation. And then the second part of the Damascus document is legal. It's, it's got all the laws that people have to keep. So I'm really talking about the first part, which is the admonition, which is kind of the introduction to these, this legal list, this book of rules. So what we find in column two, line 14 to column three, line 12 is an exhortation to the member or to the potential member not to sin. And it's interesting to us because it includes a description of biblical history, which focuses on those who have sinned and were punished, and the few righteous people who are the exceptions. And what's interesting to us is how it describes what it means to sin. And stay with me on this. You'll hear very soon what I mean. Now, the beginning of this history uses language that's based on numbers, Bimidbel, 1539, and recall all the commandments of the Lord and observe them so that you do not go about taturu, you not go about after your heart and eyes, after which you pour, after which you go astray, right? It's using the same words. It says, and now, O sons, hearken to me, and I will uncover your eyes so you may see and understand the works of God and choose that which he wants, and despise that which he hates, to walk perfectly in all his ways, and not to go about in the thoughts of an inclination of guilt and lecherous eyes. So it's expanding on the verse. Let me read the end of it. Not to go about in the thoughts of an inclination of guilt, and lecherous eyes. So this has interpreted your hearts. Let me go back and read Numbers 1539. I'm reading the end of the verse now. And it says, you shouldn't go astray. It says, in the Damascus document. And then it says, after your hearts in the verse, in the biblical verse. And in the Damascus document, it says, in other words, the thoughts of the inclination of guilt. In other words, it interprets your hearts. What does it mean to go after your hearts? It means not to go after the thoughts 
of the inclination of guilt. All right. And then it says, in the biblical verse, and after your eyes that you whore after, in the biblical verse, and in the Damascus document, it simply says, and lecherous eyes, eyes of kind of whoredom, as it were. So it's kind of a an interpretation. What does a heart mean? A heart means your inclination, right? What does it mean to go about you know, your eyes to kind of be lecherous, it means you have lecherous eyes. And we've seen that before in sectarian prayer, the idea that your eyes are lecherous, right? Is it focusing more on the thought itself or a response to the thought? What do you mean? Is it saying that the thoughts are what the problem is or the human's reaction to the thought and their response to the thought? I think right now, they're saying not to go after those thoughts. In other words, if you look at what it says, and I'll repeat what it says, it says, Lo latul, don't go about after the thoughts, the thoughts of the inclination of guilt and the lecherous In other words, you have these this inclination of guilt, you have these lecherous don't go after them. In other so words, the thoughts about, aren't the problem necessarily. I will, the thoughts are considered bad, but the real problem is going after them. The, okay. the, thought, the fact that you've got this evil inclination, the fact that you have lecherous eyes right here is taken for granted. Okay, it's taken for granted. Don't go after them. And in fact, we're going to see that in general, in this section of the Damascus document, it's taken for granted you have an evil inclination. It's taken for granted you're going to want to sin. Your job is not to follow your own will. Okay, that's your job. So, and then after this, the Damascus document goes into a history of sinners, which I mentioned before. It says, for many have strayed due to them, due to them meaning the inclination of guilt and lecherous eyes, right? For many have strayed due to them. Mighty men of valor, mighty men of valor have stumbled due to them from their earliest times and until today. Walking after the stubbornness of their hearts, which is a standard biblical way of talking about, you know, people's, particularly Israel's tendency to be sinful. Walking in the stubbornness of your heart is, is sinning. The watchers of heaven fell. So again, walking after the stubbornness of their hearts, the watchers of heaven fell. They were held by it, for they did not keep God's commandments. And so to their sons, remember their sons, the giants? Then so to their sons, who were as high as lofty cedars and whose bodies were like mountains. For all flesh which was on dry land fell, for they died and were as if they had not been, for they had done their own will and had not kept the commandments of their maker until his wrath was kindled against them. Now, this is very interesting. Okay, anyone who's listening, who's heard when we discussed the Watcher's story and the Watcher's myth and how that idea became a central explanation of sin in the Second Temple period. Notice how different this approach is here. The approach here is, yes, there were the watchers. Yes, they did sin. They were angels who, who fell. They sinned. Yes, they did have giants afterwards. And then the punishment was that they were all killed. Okay, they were all killed by the flood or right before the flood. It's, it's following that tradition of the story. And what's the importance of the watchers for sin in this account? Not that they're the origin of human sin. Here, it's not taking the, the idea that demons cause sin. It's saying they were the first sinners. They were the first ones to follow their own will and not listen to God. Again, when doing their will, and they didn't keep the commandments of their maker. 
until he got angry at them. Okay, so what's important here is not that they're the origin of sin. No, they're not. They're just the first sinners. They're just the first ones to follow their own will and not listen to God. So why are they important? Because they're an example of gibore chayil, right? Of mighty heroes who sinned. Just because you're mighty, and you could even say just because you're angelic doesn't mean you can't sin. And it would be in, it could be interesting even to say that there's a, maybe a parallel being drawn. We spoke last time about the idea that joining the community somehow raises you to be almost among the angels. I mean, assuming that you you are in good standing. And the idea here is, well, even angels have sinned. So don't think that just because you're joining, now you're free of any sort of inclination to sin. Okay. Is that because uh, joining a group and working together to overcome sin is easier than doing it on your own? You mean in terms of joining the community? Is it easier to not sin when you're in a group of people who are also trying to not sin? Well, to be honest, I mean, I would, I would assume that, yes, it is. I would assume that it's easier, but that's not an approach they seem to take. The approach that they seem to take is that joining the community in a metaphysical sense kind of rises you above this really base physicality that makes sin inevitable. Because it shows your chosenness by God. And if the idea is that the connection with God, I think it's more the idea that the connection with God, which is allowed through you being part of the community because you're doing the right thing, the connection of, with God is what keeps one from sinning, right? Okay. okay. But here, here, it's actually kind of going against that idea. It's saying, it's still up to you. And this is what we're going to see throughout because then the description goes on and continues and it says, it says that Noah's sons also stray through it, but what does that mean? Apparently by following their own thoughts and eyes. In other words, why do Noah's sons sin not because the watchers of the watchers' descendants demonically influencing them like they, we had in the book of Jubilees, but they also sin through their evil inclination. But what's really interesting here is, is as it continues, it makes it very clear. It makes it very clear that the choice is between one's own will and the commandments of God and that there is a choice. So what does it say? It says, Abraham did not walk in it. In other words, he did not walk in the thoughts of an evil, you know, thoughts of an evil inclination and his lecture size. Abraham did not walk in it and he was accepted as a lover for he kept God's commandments and did not choose to follow the will of his own spirit. He, he kept the commandments of God and he did not choose the will of his own spirit. And I want to say choose. Bachal is a word that repeats in this passage. There's a choice. You have to choose the commandments of God and not your own will. Okay. So again, it says with the first ones, who came and who entered the covenant, the first ones who entered the covenant became guilty through it, and they were given up to the sword, having abandoned God's covenant, and they chose their own will, and straight after the stubbornness of their heart, for each one to do his own will. There are two words that repeat in this section. Ratzon, which is will, the will of the person, right? And bachal, to choose. So your idea, the assumption is that one's ratzon, one's will, is always going to be negative. Because you're a human being, your will is going to tend towards evil. Your job 
is to choose the right way and not to choose your own will. If your own will is tending to something and you always know that it tends to evil, that doesn't relieve you of responsibility. On the contrary, you know that if you want that thing, it's evil, right? And your, your choice is you have to choose the commandments of God. Okay, so here we have, so we have the idea that Abraham does not choose his own will. And note, it says he doesn't choose his own will. It doesn't say he was righteous, so he had a righteous will. He said, He didn't choose the will of his spirit. Avraham, like every other human being, has an evil inclination, and he doesn't choose it. Instead, he follows the commandments of God. And the first Israelites to enter the covenant don't do that. They choose their own will and do not follow the commandments of God. And then finally, uh, it's, then finally it arrives at, you know, the, essentially the present community who now are going to be righteous. So in general, what do you have here? You have a setup where the inclination of guilt and lecherous eyes seem to be a basic part of people. And the last thing it does is relieve them of responsibility. On the contrary, it makes their responsibility much greater because they know that as people, they're going to tend towards evil. And they know that their responsibility is to, is to follow the commandments of God. And the dichotomy that's set up is people's will and commandments of God. And so that's the choice that people have in the Damascus document. And elsewhere in this kind of introduction, we also have the stubbornness of their hearts, also paired with language that indicates choice. So in column eight, line seven to eight, each of the evil leaders that are signified by the princes of Yehuda, Hosea 5.10, chooses the stubbornness of his heart. They choose the stubbornness of their heart. In other words, sinning is a choice. That's what the introduction to Damascus document sets up. Does that mean they don't believe in predestination? Does it mean that they don't believe that they were chosen from the beginning to be good? And the answer is no. Right, The freedom of choice that's described in the passage I was reading to you from, which was Damascus document, uh, column 2, line 14 to column 3, line 12, it's following a passage that is actually emphasizing predestination. It's talking about how they were chosen, right? And how God, and it's actually even more extreme. It says that God leads astray those who he hates. Okay, it says in column 3, uh, lines 12 to 18, there the audience of this passage is assured that those who will hold fast to the divine commandments were rewarded by God, and God revealed to them hidden things in which all Israel had strayed. And remember, this is the idea of the community. The community thinks that, how have others strayed and not known these commandments? They were hidden, and God revealed to them what they should be doing, right? Which includes Shabbat, and the appointed times, and the ways of his truth and the desires of his will, which a person shall do and shall live through them. In other words, God revealed it to them, and a lot of this has to do with the calendar. And what does he reveal? The Shabbat and the appointed times. They kept a different calendar from that, the calendar that was kept in the temple. In the temple, they're keeping the lunar solar calendar, and they're keeping a kind of a contrived solar calendar, which is not exactly exact because it's 364 days exactly or at least that's what they're supposed to keep. And so they have merited to get the truth. They've merited to learn the hidden things in which all Israel had strayed. So what do I mean by emphasizing predestination, that, that the previous passage emphasizes predestination? Well, in column 2, lines 2 to 13, assures the reader that there's a possibility of repentance, but it emphasizes 
divine foreknowledge, and there's a God knows everything that people are going to do, and predestination. God has withheld the possibility of choice from the wicked from the beginning. He knew their actions even before they were created. And in contrast, God has already designated individuals, which is those who are called by name, creation, who will form the remnant and will fill the earth with their descendants. And the names of these chosen individuals will be made known through God's anointed one and the seers of truth. And it concludes saying, and that which he hated, he led astray. In other words, right before we have this passage where all this choice and you have to choose and you have to choose, you have to choose. We actually have a passage where it says God already determined who's going to be good and who's going to be wicked and the wicked people God led astray. But why wouldn't he want the wicked to have the will to change themselves and improve? Why would he want them to stay wicked? Okay, so let's look at it from the point of view of the, the sect for a second. And I think that's the that's what we need to do here to understand what's going on. From the point of view of the sect, if you join the sect, that means you're not one of the wicked, by definition. In other words, you could have done whatever beforehand, but if you come to the sect and now you fulfill all the requirements, you go through the years of you know showing that you know the laws of purity, et cetera, et cetera, you are now one of the righteous, okay? So how can you understand how that guy who's not part of the community is doing what he's doing? How can you understand how the wicked priest is coming to try and make you eat on Yom Kippur? Well, on your Yom Kippur, right, which is not the same as the temple's Yom Kippur. How can you understand that? Well, he must have been born wicked. In other words, God determined some of the people should be wicked and some people should be righteous. The fact that anyone anyone who joins a community essentially is understood to, oh, have been chosen as one of the righteous people. Oh, you must be a righteous person. But then why wouldn't it be that the goal would be for everybody to become righteous? Is it for contrast? Because seeing evil will help people understand what it means to be good? Or is it just question you can't answer? Well I, well, I love your approach. I love this idea, you know, that everything should be should be uh, used for good. But I think that they simply assume that there are always going to be evil people. It's interesting because we're going to talk in the future episode a little bit about the influence of Persian thought, right? And Qumran and the Second Temple in general. And of course, in Persian a thought in Zoroastrian thought, rather, you have this kind of dichotomy between good and evil, and the present age is an age of a mix of good and evil. Like, by definition, it must be a mix of good and evil. I think for the community, it's actually harsher than that. It's more pessimistic than that. I think they think the present, they say the present age is the dominion of Belial. In other words, in the present age, evil kind of rules, which is a very dark view of the present age. But I think it expresses their feeling of persecution, even though they're the ones who are doing the right thing. And I think that this kind of harsh view of things, this very harsh view of there are wicked people and they will be wicked because they have been determined to be wicked and they don't even have a choice at this point. God has deliberately led them astray. On the one hand, it explains something which is actually in the next passage, which is that God has revealed to the community, it says in the passage after, after we have this introduction about predestination and God has led the wicked astray. And then we have a section talking about the history of people and how you have to choose God's commandment and not your own will. And then after that, it says that those who continue to hold fast to the divine commandments were rewarded by God who revealed to them, quote, hidden things in which all Israel had strayed, ta'u, unquote. So that, and including Shabbat, appointed times, and, quote, the ways of his truth and the desires of his will, which a person shall do and shall live through them, unquote. So, the idea is, what does it mean to be part of the community? You're part of this group that God has revealed the hidden things, which everyone else strayed. 
How does everyone else stray? Well, you know the correct calendar because the Dead Sea community kept a solar calendar and not a lunisolar calendar. The temple kept a lunisolar calendar. In other words, a calendar which was lunar but adjusted every year to match the seasons, the solar seasons. Okay, by the way, that was standard for the entire ancient Near East up till the Hellenistic period. was a lunar calendar and every now and then you'd have a leap year. Whereas in the Qumran community, they kept a purely solar calendar, but it was kind of a stylized calendar, as it were. It wasn't a really correct calendar because it was exactly 364 days. So this is revealed by God. This is something that everyone else has strayed through. So this is a way for them to explain why does everyone else think that their calendar is correct, that the lunar solar calendar is correct. They're all sinning. And the answer is, well, this was kind of determined from the beginning, but we merited that we know the right way. And so we were determined to be righteous. We were predestined to be righteous and we are keeping the correct calendar and therefore the correct Shabbat. Uh, By the way, what does that mean, the correct Shabbat? Everyone was keeping the same Shabbat, weren't they? And one of the explanations is that the Qumran calendar was arranged so that holidays never fell on Shabbat. And what that meant was that you would not, if one were to sacrifice a temple according to the Qumran calendar, one would not sacrifice a holiday sacrifice on Shabbat, thereby possibly, according to the community, maybe they felt that bringing an extra sacrifice on Shabbat would be breaking Shabbat, perhaps. So anyway, the is in this passage, ta'a, right, to stray refers to transgressing the hidden commandments, right? There are hidden commandments that only they know about. And that was in the passage that we have before we had the history of sinners, we had God, he led astray those whom he hated. And perhaps this is the way the community is seeing this idea of why are there so many Jews who aren't keeping these hidden commandments, who have not discovered these hidden commandments? And the answer is it's all determined by God from the beginning. He saw who he determined who was going to be wicked or he saw who was going to be wicked. And those wicked people never learned the correct commandments. Again, if we look at it from the point of view of the sect, as opposed to kind of a philosophical point of view, why would you want to believe in a God who has determined that some people are going to be wicked forever, right? I've been Uh, wanting to ask that. (laughs) Right. So why would you want to believe in a God who does that? First of all, they seem to be pretty harsh. Their outlook is a harsh one. And their outlook is so harsh that I don't think they have a problem with that. I don't think they have a problem with some people who are wicked and clearly they're wicked and they were apparently predestined to be wicked and then they're going to burn. They don't seem to have a problem with that. I think it's more that they need to understand why are they, this small community, the only ones who, in their opinion, are keeping the correct commandments. I don't think I've ever heard about God hating anybody. Angry, of course, but the word hate is really strong. Yeah, the word hate is a very very strong term. And again, they have a very harsh view frequently of, of outsiders and especially especially their leaders, especially the leaders who oppose the community, because they see themselves really as, you know, up against the leaders who must be truly evil if they're arguing against what the community is saying. So what have we seen in the Damascus document? In the Damascus document, we see that on the one hand, we have this kind of history of humanity and of Israel, where it's very clear that a sinner chooses his own will where someone who is righteous does not choose his own will and chooses instead the commandments of God. And that is the choice that one makes, knowing that one has an inclination to sin. At the same time, this is within a framework of a true belief in predestination that those people who are wicked were chosen from the beginning to be wicked. So how can people join the community? Well, if someone joins the community, clearly 
they were not meant to be wicked. Okay, so the community can feel pretty uh, confident. However, that doesn't mean that they don't have an inclination to sin. Even the angels had their own will and followed it to sin, right? So they must still be on guard. Now we have something interesting in the community rule. The community rule, the Damascus document also went through redaction and is considered a composite text. It was it was put together from different pieces. The community rule very clearly went through redaction, in other words, editing, and we have different versions of the community rule. We have a shorter version that we have in Cave 4. We have a longer version from Cave 1. And what's interesting is that you can actually see additions in Cave 1, in the Cave 1 version, which seem to give explanations of sinners indicating free will. So, you know, free will indicating that there's an inclination to sin, and this is why people sin. So we have, for example, it says, so that no one shall walk in the stubbornness of his heart to stray. And then in the cave one version, it adds, straight following his heart, his eyes, and the thought of his inclination. He shall rather circumcise in the yachad, or together, it's not clear as it referring to the community, you're saying circumcise together, the foreskin of the inclination and a stiff neck. In other words, it's an addition saying, what does it mean to, to walk into stubborn of your heart to stray? It means you're following your heart, your eyes, and the thought of your inclination. And instead, what you should do is circumcise this together or, in, or within the community, circumcise the foreskin of the inclination and a stiff neck. The depiction of entry into the community is circumcising kind of the foreskin of the heart could be compared with how the community describes or how a one of oh, a composer within the community describes the wicked priest in Peshach Havakuk, it says, its interpretation concerns the priest whose shame prevailed over his glory for he did not or had not circumcised the foreskin of his heart. In other words, here we actually see a depiction of the choice to join the community. In other words, this wicked priest who was arguing with them, you know, about Yom Kippur, etc., he had not circumcised the foreskin of his heart. He had not curbed his evil inclination by joining the community. This seems to have been a choice. He didn't circumcise it. That was what he could have done, right? We have another expansion in the cave one version as opposed to the cave four version. Indicates though that the internal inclination towards sin has not been completely removed just by joining. Okay. At least not in the view of the person who's kind of redacting, who's adding this passage. So it says in the, uh, in the laws, it says he must not speak to his fellow with anger or with grumbling. And then we have an addition in the cave one version or with a stiff neck. Or in the jealousy of a spirit of wickedness. And he shall not hate him in the foreskin of his heart, for he shall admonish him on that day and not bear iniquity because of him. And this expansion says, what does it mean he shouldn't speak to his fellow with anger or with grumbling? He shouldn't let his stiff neck or the foreskin of his heart, namely his inclination, he shouldn't kind of let it out. He shouldn't act on his evil inclination, but he should, however, reprove him. Shouldn't keep him from reproving him, but he shouldn't speak to him in anger and grumbling. He should tell him what he did wrong. And again, the freedom of choice is clear in the description we find in the cave one version of the community rule. And it says where it's talking about the non-member. Okay. And it says you should separate all the men of injustice. And now what I'm going to read is only in the cave one version who walk in the way of wickedness for they are not accounted in his covenant since they have neither sought nor inquired after him through his statutes in order to know the hidden laws in which they erred to their guilt, nor the revealed laws in which they acted with an arrogant hand. In other words, they haven't tried to learn the hidden laws that only the community knows, and they also haven't even acted according to the, the revealed laws, which they have, right? Thus arousing anger for judgment and taking vengeance by the curses of the covenant. Against them, God will execute great judgments, resulting in eternal destruction without a remnant. In other words, why are they going to be punished? In this case, not because they were predestined. They have not 
sought him out. They have neither sought nor inquired after him through his statutes, okay? They haven't looked for God. They haven't sought out the correct commandments here. And what's interesting is, to me, not just that it's written, someone added it, okay? We have a shorter version in cave four, from cave four, and we have this longer version from cave one where someone said, I want to explain why these people who are outside the community are being punished and why you should just separate out from them. It's because they didn't seek out God. They sinned. And why did they sin? They sinned because they have this evil inclination. In this case, it's simply saying that they walk in the way of wickedness. But elsewhere, in the expansions, again, in someone who went over the community rule and added sections where it's talking about what does it mean to walk in the stubbornness of your heart? It means to stray following his heart, his eyes, and the thought of his inclination. And he shall rather circumcise in the yachad the foreskin of the inclination and a stiff neck. So in these additions that are in cave, the cave one version of community rule, there's someone who it's very important to this person to say one has an inclination and one's job is to seek out God, seek out the correct commandments, and also join the community and thus curb your evil inclination, even though it may continue even after you join. And then you have to make sure not to follow it. How would a non-member go about becoming part of the community? Oh, they would go to the community and they have to, uh, it takes years because they have to show that they, they have to learn all the rules of purity. It takes a while before they can eat solids with the community, before they can drink liquids with the community. You know, they have a very long kind of training period. But after that, they're in the community and they keep the community rule with everyone else. And they have to, uh, you know, there's communal property. And it really, it depends. The community rule in the Damascus document reflect kind of different rules and different almost ways of life that were possible in the community. And it's not clear which came first. Like it, It's not clear what stage the community rules from and which stage the Damascus document is from, you know, which one is earlier. There are at least, you know, there are two opinions, right? One is that the Damascus document is earlier, one is that it's later, with major scholars on either side, but you could absolutely join the community. It would take, again, it would take years, right? And how would somebody know about the community enough to know that it, it was for them, that they were interested? Did they share their community's beliefs with others or how, did they just see it? Okay, so I think, I think that there are a couple of things there's a nice film at the at the Israel Museum that they actually um, they did with Hanan Eshel. Allah um, Shalom, Hanan Eshel has passed away, which kind of shows a. It's nice because it shows someone who's in the community and decides to leave, and he meets up with someone who's in Jerusalem, and he's describing the community. And the guy in Jerusalem was like, "That sounds perfect. I'm going to go there." So they they could have met. They could absolutely have met people from the community and said, wow, that sounds right. But also the community was not, it was part of a larger, you could say in a way it was part of a larger group. Like, for example, the fact the community is using, you know, they're they're reading, uh, they're reading the Book of Enoch, they're reading Jubilees, they're using certain prayer texts that seem to be, come from outside the community. There are probably more Jubilee seems to support a solar calendar. First Enoch in certain places seems to support a solar calendar. There seems to be a larger group of Jews, at least, who start to feel that the solar calendar is the right way, for example. And then they would be kind of, they would kind of start thinking, okay, so what else? What else do they believe? The Dead Sea had a charismatic leader who joined after it already existed. In other words, the community already existed. And then the teacher of righteousness kind of joined and took 
you know, kind of became the leader. So you have a charismatic leader and, you know, the charismatic leaders are good at kind of having, you know, appealing to people who then join. And I think there was in general, there was uh, certainly among certain Jews, there was a big movement for more purity, being more as righteous as you possibly could be, or absolutely apocalyptic views that started to rise, possibly when, uh, I mean, Al Baumgarten's theory, which is that, that the reason people started to kind of look towards this apocalyptic future was because of their their disappointment in the Hasmonean dynasty. In other words, they thought that the Hasmoneans were going to be kind of bringing the true Messianic age, and then they didn't. And so people became very extreme in their beliefs, saying, no, 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 we need to be super religious, and we need to be super pure, and we need to look forward to this apocalyptic age that's going to really bring about a change because they were so disappointed in the Hasmonean dynasty, which they had hoped was going to bring in this Messianic age. So they're part of a larger movement. They're not completely bizarre within the context of the late Second Temple period. There are a lot of these groups kind of going around searching for what is the right way to be. And they are one of them. Uh, so it's it's uh, so it's the sort of thing that the Jews were searching for. So what have we heard in this episode? What have we gone over in this episode? We've seen that. We've looked at two different rule texts and we've seen different things that indicate kind of both a belief in an evil inclination and also a desire to emphasize either free will or how the evil inclination works. So in the Damascus document, we saw that while they really do believe in predestination and they believe that the righteous and the wicked were determined and that even that God led those who he hates astray, which is a very strong term for it by not giving them access to all the correct laws. At the same time, people in the final analysis need to choose God's commandments and not their own will. And the fact that they know that there's an evil inclination means that the responsibility is that much clearer to not follow their own will. And that's a choice. And it's Bachal is repeated in that section of the Damascus documents. That's what we saw in the Damascus document. In the community rule, which we have in different copies in cave four and in cave one, we saw that in the expanded version, it was important enough to someone to both explain that an evil inclination, that the way to curb the evil inclination is to join, either join the community or join together, make an act, have a decision to curb, to uh, circumcise the foreskin of one's heart. And at the same time, that even that that those who are not members, why are they punished? They're punished for not seeking out God, right? This was an action they did not take. It is not simply that they were predestined. And even someone who's joined the community and now must rebuke his fellow and, and must not grumble, what are they supposed to do? What does it mean to not be angry and not grumble? It's to not listen to one's inclination, essentially, not to act on one's inclination. So that's what we saw in the community rule in the longer version that we have from cave one, which is interesting because it really does indicate, at least to me, now again, there's some people who see cave four as a shortened version of cave one, as opposed to cave one as a lengthened version of cave of the cave four version. I don't see a reason for anyone to have taken those pieces out, but I do see a reason for someone to put them in. They seem to be explanatory sentences that ex- try to explain what's going on. That what's going on is the people who have not joined the community are not seeking out God. And those who do join the community, that's an action to try and curb the evil inclination. So I hope now you're you're happy, Melissa, with a little bit more responsibility being taken. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, that's good. And in our next episode, we're going to look at a very interesting Dead Sea community text called The Treatise of the Two Spirits and how it kind of combines all of the different approaches to sin we've seen so far. In other words, it combines demonic approaches to sin, like approaches to sin where they're coming from demons, uh, the evil inclination and yet seems to reflect some Persian influence as well. 
So as always, I look forward to your comments and questions. You can leave them at understandingsin.com. Please do. And also any feedback that you have. And I look forward to speaking with you next time. Thank you. Thank you all. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.